This podcast was originally the audio for a work of the same name for the Nearly On Red YouTube channel, found at youtube.com slash c slash nearly on red. Though not intended to be a standalone podcast, viewers frequently consume my videos for their audio content only, so I have duplicated my work in this format to hopefully save people a step. A full list of content and platforms can be found at nearlyonred.com or the short link nearly.red, N-E-A-R-L-Y dot R-E-D. Enjoy! Hi everybody, welcome to the Not Quite Daily Show, Spring 2018 Season Episode 3. Today we're talking about Darling in the Franks Episode 15. Well, assuming you watched my last video, you can probably guess that I'm feeling conflicted right now. I'm sure a lot of people who were upset at last episode are now exuberant about this one. I was ecstatic about the implication of last episode, and so now, well, I would say my feelings are mixed. I also misjudged how much they want to dedicate to their existing storylines, making me believe that last time was the halfway point for the show, when it's clearly meant to be this episode. Uh, while my opinion on what I think of an episode is not the focus here, I do feel it would be incongruent for me to say nothing after the amount of time I spent explaining my enthusiasm last show. So I will say some things, though I'd normally prefer not to. Why would I want to skip over my opinion on this episode? Well, that's actually a long answer, and you might as well have it. You'll understand better what I'm about and why I give the opinion that I do. I have said before that this is an analysis channel and not a review channel. Um, I'm not splitting hairs over semantics. It used to be that there was a noticeable line between a film critic and a film reviewer. The reviewer's job was to judge films and to communicate the success or failure of a work and the reasons they determined that judgment. They exist to tell you yay or nay, how many stars or points or thumbs a work deserves, and to save you the trouble of searching blindly through all available entertainment. Critics, on the other hand, concentrated on pulling apart the details of a work, evaluating individual techniques, character journeys, thematic concepts, uh, and the relationship between the work and the message it relates to its audience. This use of the term still survives in the written world, where literary criticism is recognized as wholly distinct from a book review, but in film and television, the idea of a critic and a reviewer has become pretty interchangeable over time. This is part of why I prefer the term analyst and analysis instead of critic or critique for what I'm trying to do. I realize that this is also losing its differentiation. A quick trip around YouTube will show you many examples of advertising something as an analysis when it is more of a roundup of what they liked or disliked. But that's not what it's supposed to mean. A pure analysis should have no intrusion from the analyst about which aspects they thought were good or not. And despite that whole speech, I don't actually do that. Though it is a minor aspect of my show relative to the runtime, I still insert myself into these analyses to commentate on the effectiveness of the shows we discuss. Now, there's a variety of reasons I do this, but the prime reason I see no conflict here is that that pure analysis I referred to a moment ago um, doesn't exist. The very act of choosing a work for analysis carries an implicit value judgment. Neither I nor anyone else is choosing a work for criticism at random, uh, nor am I seeking out the worst series available for a deep critical dive. If I'm going to spend the enormity of time required to examine a work, I must think highly of it to want to bother. Like I said back in episode 2, 
In order to even do what I do here, I have to give the writers the benefit of the doubt. Thus, the very selection process already breaks that perfect line between analysis and review. But there are two things I aim to do differently than the background average of critics. One is that I actively minimize how much of any video is pure opinion, what I did or didn't like. Uh, the other is that as a general rule, I mostly will insert my opinion about what I think is done well. I am a positive, optimistic commentator by default. I am likely to spend minimal or no time on things I dislike, weighing in mostly when I want to highlight something I think is impressive. This is partially because of my temperament, and partially because so many critics fixate on the negative. I get it, it's easier and funnier to hate on something than it is to sing its praises, but I think it's an unfortunate and possibly even damaging trend. You see, there is a sizable number of people out there who will let minor dislikes about a work contribute a disproportionate amount to their opinion of the work as a whole, allowing tiny negative aspects to balloon and grow in their mind until it blocks out all of the good and enjoyable parts. To me, this is like noticing poor female anatomy in the Sistine Chapel and thus declaring the whole thing a failure. But I often feel that I must be the outsider here because this infatuation with crapping on minor things in creative works is ubiquitous. If I were to give you any advice as a consumer of entertainment though, it would be to separate yourself and your enjoyment of creative works from the part of you that analyzes their strengths and weaknesses. I'm not saying have no opinion on whether something is good or bad. Rather, I suggest that you keep that thought process distinct from your enjoyment or boredom. That may sound like an odd or even impossible request, but I will assert that it's something you already do when it comes to humor. If a joke or a gag strikes you as funny, you laugh, you, you react with enjoyment. You don't stop and try to pick apart why the joke was strong or weak, or why it might not have hit for someone else. You actually do the opposite. You know that you don't explain the joke because doing so actually kills the humor of it. You already keep the part of you that judges away from the part of you that laughs. So I'm suggesting you do that for all of your entertainment because I promise you, when you let small things you dislike block out everything you do like, the only one who loses is you. Only you have your enjoyment decreased. Only you have narrowed the things in your experience that can bring you joy. There is no prize waiting for the person with the most perfect list of sticking points. Even the satisfaction gained from tearing down something that others build up will be fleeting compared to the satisfaction of those who simply enjoy the thing. This advice probably sounds idealistic, um, but I'm gonna assert that it is actually pragmatic. And the reason I believe that is because everything is flawed. Everything has an imperfection, some way in which it can be improved. If you look hard enough for shortcomings and are someone for whom shortcomings ruin the whole, then it will be possible for you to manage to hate everything. And that will gain you, what exactly? So be sparing in what flaws ruin your enjoyment because flaws are everywhere. Why are flaws everywhere? Because humans are flawed. You, me, society, everybody everywhere. And so this includes the creatives who make the things we enjoy. If we insisted that every artist and writer and musician wait until their work was perfect before releasing it to the world, then we would be a world with zero books or songs or art. If you accept imperfection as a necessary side effect of having anything at all, the world will become more enjoyable. Because, and this is really the key point, because it is exactly those imperfections that make works human, relatable. 
able to speak to us because they come from us and are about us. You and the people you love have their own shortcomings. You love and accept them anyway because that is part of the human experience. Flaws are inherent to anything we create because we are flawed. It's a feature, not a bug. This is why I believe one of the most important things necessary for a character to be interesting is that they must have flaws. The ways in which they aren't perfect become the very aspects that cause tension and drama, the rocks in the stream that the narrative flows and churns around. And in watching characters struggle thus, we are practicing that most human of emotions, empathy. It's what connects us so strongly to stories. You see, when we are rooting for characters to face their flaws, to overcome the things inside and outside that hold them back, we are all really rooting for ourselves. Seeing characters succeed against long odds helps remind us that we can do that too. That we, for all of our flaws and mistakes and setbacks and obstacles, we are still capable of chasing our own happy endings. So, that is the tangent, and I hope it'll make you understand why my opinions in both this video and others show up the way they do. I thought this would be a good time to give you this explanation, because central to both it and my opinion of the episode is that concept of character flaws. It's important to characterization, and it's important to understand as a consumer, and lately, it's been absolutely central to Darling and the Franks. I thought last time that having our three main characters face their flaws would be a central thrust going forward. Uh, that letting each of them contribute to last episode's mess uh, was proof that the character journeys of each was a major focus. That was the more important of the two reasons I was excited last time. You will not be surprised to learn that I think this resolution was hasty. I feel like we're missing an episode in here. And maybe this would have been the perfect time for a double-length episode to fully explore the three flaws. Uh, the destructive power of these flaws was put on display last episode, and I think I would have liked some time for each of them to suffer from the uh, after-effects. I would have liked to have seen Ichigo attempt to encourage and connect a hero, and then have him withdraw or even rebuff her. I would have liked to have seen Zero Two devour her stamen and her frustration, but begin to feel something more than indifference when she did so. And I would have liked to have seen Hiro and the rest of the 13ers spar a little bit. I mean, I think he has something to answer for to the rest of them. Some, uh, some real explaining to do. I think something like the paired episodes of 5 and 6 would have been appropriate again, in which the storm of threat builds over each personal relationship while the upcoming battle looms over everyone and affects their desperation. When the actual target beta fight helps climax these tensions while also resolving and reversing some of them, uh, the payoff is heightened. Because we skipped the character reactions to episode 14 before going straight into the Grand Crevasse showdown, uh, we missed out on this buildup, which I felt undermined what should have been the highest high point of the series. Now, we did have these three face their flaws in some respect, so my fear of them glossing over their issues for the sake of the one true parrying was at least somewhat mollified. Uh, Hero does finally switch to being a man of action, and he does so from a combination of looking inward and being externally motivated by Zero Two. Good. Zero Two still has a really long way to go, but she does save some of her fellow pilots despite her crazed state, and abandons her mission of the Grand Crevasse to try to save Plantation 13. Progress. And Ichigo does have to face the reality of her and Hiro, but she doesn't face it herself. It takes Goto intervening and the unflinching truth of the mind connection to get to her. She's passive, basically. 
But what's more, while I could believe that she would be able to understand Hero and Zero Two and even support them in time, I don't believe that the hero that would rather die than let Hero return to her is now glad for them less than 24 hours later. That isn't a realistic turnaround. And it's especially egregious considering how otherwise believable Ichigo's reaction and frantic behavior has been. If she's actually accepting of Hero and Zero Two all of a sudden, then it means she went the furthest out of all of them in addressing her flaw, but she did so passively as a result of things happening to her, not introspection, not any action that she herself initiated. I find that really unsatisfying. Uh, even one more episode in which Hiro and she were obviously awkward and her frustrated would have made this more believable. Additionally, Hiro and Zero Two not being able to fully overcome their flaws before reuniting ends up making more sense by the end of this episode um, and actually does embrace the direction I wanted to see. Um, I'll talk about that, uh, what I mean, when we get there. Overall, though, I think the series just shortchanged the careful characterization they spent so many episodes on, apparently for the sake of having this grander and more cinematic episode at this point in the series. Um, I wish it was different, but they still did plenty of things right, so fear not, I will still enthusiastically dive in. The second and less important thing I mentioned last time now gets reversed as well. We're back to having our happy ending less likely. Yes, you can certainly interpret the picture book story as having actually run its course at the end of last episode with the two of them separating. In that interpretation, this episode is like a prologue in which the characters fight back against their fate. The prince goes looking for the beast that fled and refuses to let her go. Great. I find that an acceptable reading of these episodes. But that still doesn't change where we are in the overall series. We still got the main couple together near the midway point. There's still nine episodes of potential mishaps awaiting them. I don't think they will separate willingly again. Uh, this episode did do a good job of giving finality to their decision to be together, but external forces in the story are still way bigger than they are. And that introduces the thing that worries me most about this episode. By wrapping up a lot of character progression, and not just Hero and Zero Twos, um, as well as all known story waypoints by encountering and overcoming the Grand Crevasse fight, we now have a situation where they can take the series' emphasis in a new direction. As I said last time, all the stuff with Klaxosaurs and the Ape Council has largely been background. It's the setting in which our character dramas are playing out. Now that so much has been resolved, we could see the showrunners making the Klaxosaur and Plantation dystopia part of the story is the main focus. While I certainly we expect all of that to move forward, if it's at the expense of our character interplay and growth, then it's actually undoing a lot of what has made the series strong to this point. A lot of pieces were arranged this time to give them a new jumping off point, and frankly that makes me nervous. But, like I said, in order to do what I do, I have to give them the benefit of the doubt. Thus ends all of the worry and negativity I have about this episode, uh, which I still did like and have enjoyed re-watching as I write the script. So let's do what we usually do, and look at what makes this part of our story work. Today's episode skips the opening credits, as many of our bigger episodes have. We also forego having any opening narration, or any voice narration at all, until most of the way through. I pointed out that we had a type of narration conversation between Hero and Zero Two in episode 13, when we got to peek in their youth and the closeness they had with one another. 
Last episode, as they were forced apart and struggled internally, they both narrated, but it was alternating, reflecting the distance that episode caused between them. This time, not only is there no narration for almost the whole thing, we get a new and fractured way of having their disparate thoughts peek in, further emphasizing the way they are drifting apart from each other and from their normal selves. Now, as for the scenes themselves, once again, the weather reflects the mood of the impending mission. This time, a desert sandstorm more sterile and violent and chaotic than anything we've had before. The squad is being prepped for the Grand Crevasse showdown and warned about the difficulty. Kokoro asks the thing we've been wondering for a while now, what exactly is in the Grand Crevasse? Although Hachi and Nana glance at each other as though they are agreeing to share a secret, they don't answer the question at all, instead preferring to show the 13ers feeds from the ongoing battle and the desperate scale of the conflict. The closest thing we get to an answer is Hachi informing them that taking over Grand Crevasse has been Papa's long-standing wish, and that this battle could be a turning point in humanity's history. Though we do get a tiny bit more information later, this is definitely not going to be the episode where we uncover this mystery. Our live feed switches to a force of Franks, headed by what we will later learn are the Four Nines, alongside Strelizia, whose glowing beast eyes peeking out through the chaos of the stormy battlefield give the whole setting an appropriately threatening air. Her being in stampede mode tells us immediately that all those stamen must not have worked out very well, but the show confirms it for us anyway, switching to the ape council room after an establishing shot of their mobile aerial fortress. Said aerial fortress is named Cosmos, which might suggest the stars and greater universe, but actually Cosmos are a type of flower as well. It's what I suggested one of the flowers in Kokoro's greenhouse might be. Considering the pattern of the plantation names, I'm going to guess that they were going for the double meaning here. Um, otherwise, it would make more sense for this to be the one that bears the chrysanthemum name. Name aside, doesn't this thing look like it's really, really high up? Like, low Earth orbit high up? I'm kind of surprised to discover they are spacefaring. This aerial fortress looks like a plantation crossed with a windmill and must be enormous. Additionally, Dr. Franks is on it for this scene, but he will be able to get to the battlefield in a matter of hours. That's either impressive tech or glossing over the details. Now, while it makes sense that the ruling powers would take to the skies, given the chance, um, after all, nowhere on the ground seems to be safe from Klaxosaurs, if they're capable of putting that much mass into orbit, then why is something like a ground assault on the Grand Crevasse the first choice? I feel like a little kinetic bombardment would really cut out some time and loss of life here. Uh, there may be a very good reason it needs to be approached in the manner they choose. Uh, too bad they hold back so many details that we can't construct a better reason for this, uh, other than it makes the story better. In the council chamber itself, Dr. Franks expresses that he should have known that she would devour all of her stamen. Uh, she must have gone through them at an incredible clip, uh, though I guess we don't know how long each one of these waves has lasted. The council doesn't seem very bothered, instead gushing over the victory they feel is near at hand. One says that if they do take over the Grand Kavos, they might finally have their wish, and I'm guessing they were referring to that future of calmness and uniformity. Next, they make the first reference to something called Horinghorn uh, that they are constructing. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. So if you remember back in episode 9, I talked about mistletoe and a lot of its cultural and mythological significance, uh, as I felt they were invoking both it and its myth heritage intentionally. One of the stories I told you was that of the Norse god Baldr, whose mother extracted promises from everything in the world that they would never harm her son. She neglected to ask this of mistletoe, 
and Loki conspire to trick someone into harming Balder with a weapon made of the plant. So among all the other things that Mistletoe represented, it was also the one thing that could kill an otherwise unkillable god. Well, Hringhorn here? That's the name of Balder's ship, greatest of all ships, and after his death via mistletoe, it was also turned into his funeral pyre. They burned his body and that of his grief-stricken wife, along with his horse. Also, Thor kicked some dwarf into the fire for annoying him. Norse gods had zero chill. Now, while we get no other details about this thing that they're constructing, we need to keep in mind its connection to mistletoe and the way that plant and its symbolism has been connected to our characters so far. Depending on who is put into the role of Balder in the remaining episodes, this thing that they are constructing may be quite ominous for the future of our main characters. The hero in Zero Two seemed to be associated pretty strongly with mistletoe. The only other tidbit we glean here is that they believe that Hringhorn and the Grand Crevasse together will let them bury those pests once and for all. I think we're supposed to assume they mean the Klaxosaurs, but I just want to note that this isn't what was specified. Dr. Franks, having completed um, whatever he was there for, decides he'd much rather be in maximum danger than hang out with these guys. Back in Plantation 13, the squad watches the opening tack by the next wave on their in-house Twitch stream. Zero Two is channeling the berserkers from Norse mythology for her part and plunges into the fray with the wild abandon that always lurks just below her surface. Hero notices her, coming out of the subdued state that he has probably been in since her departure. Ichigo grabs his hand and squeezes, but says nothing and looks down herself. For all my harsh words about how she was handled this episode, this is one of the moments where I realize the show can do things well, because this is a complex but subtle gesture. She's grabbing onto him as though offering support, but she is also wanting support for herself, hence not looking at him. She both wants to help him and is terrified of what he may do left to his own while at the same time is excited and slightly blushing at the touch of his hand. What a cocktail of emotions that is. Then we switch to sitting just behind Hiro as he is looking at Ichigo's hand holding. Then he looks back forward, head down as though still in his subdued state. Then he looks up at the monitors framing him, the monitors which show him the out of control Zero Two. This is extremely subtle, but it's a complex show of warring emotions from each of them and it foreshadows exactly what happens during the height of this episode between the two of them. A great place to flash our minimal title screen. Next we see a mass of bug-like Klaxosaurs. Uh, they really make me think of the Alms from Nausicaa for some reason. In the thick of this crush, we rejoin our friends the 26ers, whose coordinated team tactics do not serve them very well in this situation. One of the team is near to being crushed in the jaws of a different Klaxosaur type, but is rescued by Zero Two of all people. It's not like there was a lack of targets. This rescue seems pretty deliberate to me. Not only is this a change from her indifference at having caused death in their ranks in the past, she is taking this action while in her less reasonable stampede mode. It's progress, however small. The 26er leader, code 090, is just as surprised. A shot of him in the cockpit shows that he is aged, like, his hair and eyebrows are completely gray now, just like Zero Two's original partner back in episode one. So are we getting confirmation that piloting Franks ages you or otherwise uses you up? And maybe that Zero Two especially accelerates this process? Don't forget that one of Ape Council's original curious comments about Hero was that he seemed to be a rare sample without signs of physical aging. 
and we guessed that this might have something to do with why the parasites don't become adults. Aging in this case doesn't actually mean growing up faster, but rather refers to the side effects that aging causes to one's body. Maybe something like that? Anyway, Strelizia is soon followed by the rest of the Nines, who rain from the heavens and clear the area in no time at all. This gets us our first good look at their Franks, which apparently never skip leg day, as well as the curious situation inside their cockpits. I love that they don't clearly show us the deal the first time we peek inside, but we get enough hints from what we do see of Nine Alpha to know that something is different, like the raised collar, the horns of light, and his posture that indicates that he is not sitting upright. Nine Alpha also makes this comment, you did well for humans. This is the first of many indicators that our nines are different in more ways than just their elite status. The sixth wave is called up next, which means our 13ers are going to join the action. Hero, of course, is partnerless, and his physical recovery probably means he would be grounded anyway. As near as I can guess, this is the main reason they probably decided to proceed with this Grand Crevasse showdown, so close to last episode's interpersonal disasters. Isolating Hero and making him the one person not fighting when everyone else is at risk undoubtedly helps galvanize him. The squad is pretty upbeat and optimistic, a real contrast to their nerves before the target beta fight, and they try to reassure Hero that everything will be fine. He does not share their optimism, and when I was watching this, neither did I. I'm pretty sure the showrunners baited us on purpose here, because this kind of scene would usually scream death flag for our squad. I'm sure the writers are well aware, though, and used our expectations for what this kind of overconfidence usually suggests to increase our dread that disaster was looming. During this worried send-off from Hero, we have the beginning of these unvoiced thoughts that run across the middle of the screen. There will be a succession of these as we go through the first half of this episode, and for a while it will be the only thoughts that we hear from Hero and Zero Two. As if emphasizing one step further that they are apart, even these thoughts are written differently for each of them, with Heroes written vertically and Zero Twos written horizontally. The sixth wave begins, and we get a better look at the Nines doing their thing. We can now see plainly that their piloting and connecting situation is different than what we're used to, as the boy-girl orientation seems reversed, and we possibly have a same-sex partnership here? I'm not totally sure, the green-haired one is a bit androgynous. Uh, I wonder if the ones with handles are still called pistols in this situation. Anyway, all of the lower ones have the little light horns that we've seen come off of the hoods of the pistols in our 13er squad, yet these seem to emanate directly from them. Additionally, when they use the comms, the lower ones still show up as their normal face, like Stamen usually do, rather than having the Franks' faces be the ones speaking and showing their expressions instead. Normally I would say that we'll go over this in speculation, uh, but this just proves that as little as we thought we understood the connection process, we were still overestimating how much we knew. I feel like speculation under a certain threshold of known knowns and known unknowns starts to become kind of a waste of our time. So we'll end up just adding this to what to watch for. The Nines aren't the only squad strutting their stuff, and one of them points out the 13ers to Alpha, referring to them as his shiny new toys. I think we can surmise that he will show continued interest in our group in general, and it seems Ichigo in particular, as he pops over to tell her that her Franks is cute. You know, even though Nine Alpha is probably deliberately designed to be annoying, part of me won't mind him showing up more just to keep getting uh, Ichigo's long-suffering reaction. He gives her and us the lowdown on their battle goals about getting inside the dome that protects the Grand Crevasse, 
and the Thirteeners spring into action to try to make headway towards one of the entrances. They have come a long way from the last time they were in a joint operation, and their competence and atypical fighting style quickly earn them notice from the other squads. This includes our 26ers, and even though their leader still has a hang-up about their chaotic fighting style, he knows success when he sees it, and rallies his group to take advantage of the relief that the Thirteeners create for the other squads. Our Thirteeners arrive outside their goal and prepare to strike within. Goto makes an offhand comment upon seeing the entranceway, asking if it is man-made. Why this looks man-made to him and the Klaxosaurus do not, I'm not sure, but we wouldn't get this comment if there wasn't something strikingly different about them, so let's just file that away for now. The Thirteeners were apparently too successful, and rather than getting to strike within, the Klaxosaurus pull out a plan B of their own, as a massive new Klaxosaur begins to emerge from the ground to halt their attack. You know, back in episode 7, when we talked a little bit about Klaxosaurs and their class names, I made the comments that there is just one more of these transitional areas, called discontinuities, below that Gutenberg one, and that is the Lehman discontinuity. So look out for a class bearing that name. Well, here we go. Not just layman, but super layman class. It's not something Nada and Hachi have ever even heard of, letting us know that the escalation of this conflict is surpassing what they expected or were briefed for. Dr. Franks has apparently arrived on the battlefront now, and I don't think we should be surprised that he has chosen Plantation 13 as his front row seat. This new Klaxosaur is quite literally the size of a mountain, larger even than the plantations, and basically is a ship with a face on it, or maybe a sand crawler with a face on it. Its emergence from the ground tips Plantation 26 on its side, splitting it in half as it crashes down. This has got to be one of the most striking images in the series so far. Not just the scale of the action, with the enormous plantation itself cracking apart on impact, but this cross-section of the plantation as a whole is something else. It really looks like a planet split open, with the city below like the layers of magma and mantle, and a column rising up from these layers to the surface where trees grow and birds fly. It even curves away in such a manner to suggest a planet's spherical surface blending into the horizon. That is, until it all blows up. They guess that this new Klaxosaur is intent on destroying the plantations directly, and they guess that three of them lie along its estimated course. As we will see in a moment though, it actually does not do this. It alters its course away from one and beelines towards Plantation 13 instead. Coincidence? Ape's reaction to this is to get Code 090 on the line. As they are now effectively homeless, they make the logical candidates for Protocol 32, which turns out is a suicide bombing to disrupt the Klaxosaurus treads. Ape tells him this is a great honor, and he and his squad dutifully line up to die. Though they do comply with the order, just before they go through with it, Code 090 thinks to himself, this is for the best, right? And then he entrusts the rest to Squad 13. It seems they have made believers out of the others. Though their sacrifice does halt the advance, it's not enough to keep it from penetrating into Plantation 13 and releasing swarms of Klaxosaurs inside its walls. Ichigo decides that their squad is going to defend their home, but the first person into the breach is actually Zero Two. Since this is way away from the battle for the dome, I think we can safely say that she is coming to the defense of her former home deliberately, though with her usual reckless abandon. We finally see inside Strelizia, where Zero Two's progression away from being human is pronounced. Her horns have grown to massive antlers, whose height we can't even see. Her eyes are now fully glowing red, and spreading into Tron-like lines on her face that we frequently see in the Klaxosaur designs. Even her breathing is different. It's lower. It's bestial. 
This is way beyond anything we've seen from her, even back in her youth. She attempts to get into the Lemon class, but cannot, and must fight for her own survival instead. We get her first set of these written thoughts, begging for someone to intervene and get her out of here. It's as though she is so far progressed that she can't even think in the normal voiceover way anymore. In the 13ers' command room, Nana attempts to restore order and respond to the invading force, but both Hero and Dr. Franks are rude to the spot, watching Strelizia on the monitors. Dr. Franks says, Don't you find her far more beautiful than any human? Pure and proud, and more alone than us all? Despite facing forward and the room full of people, both of them know that he is speaking to Hero. He then says, She's like a Klaxosaur, through and through, which Hero takes issue with. However, when Dr. Franks turns to look at him, Hero has nothing else to say to support this claim. His self-confidence withers, his fatal flaw, and Dr. Franks only muses that he thought she'd finally found a partner, the poor girl. Hero then obeys Nana and returns to Mistletine. Now, I realize the Doctor has proven to be a little inscrutable down the stretch, um, and a lot of our guesses about his motivation or goals or even ethics have been, well, guesses. But does anyone else feel like he might be prodding Hero here? Trying to get a rise out of him? Or rather, trying to get some action out of him? Saying that she's just like a Klaxosaur, and that he thought she'd found a partner, both seem like ways to goad Hero to intervene, to prove that Zero Two can be human and keep a partner. I don't know, I feel this might even be part of why he came to Plantation 13 in the first place, after seeing that she devoured all the stamen that he sent to her. Down in the war zone of the inner city, our Squad 13 seems to be holding their own, but their energy and ammunition is waning under the constant assault. Zero Two is still roving around, a wild destructive force in her own right. The Nines have apparently also come inside Plantation 13, along with some other squads, and they comment on Zero Two's behavior in a casual way, talking about her bad mood and how she is an unseemly beast. Though we could have guessed as much, she obviously was as much an outsider in her previous squad as she was in the 13th squad, maybe even more so, and even the Elite Nines would be nervous at being on her bad side. Despite his comment earlier that seemed to suggest that they were also not exactly human, the other Nines don't seem to be the same kind of thing as Zero Two either, though how and why they are different than her and other squads is a new mystery. Ichigo also notices Zero Two's state. Um, I imagine she has some very conflicting feelings at seeing her here, defending their home after everything that's happened. Hero has returned to Mistletine with Zero Two still in his mind and goes immediately to her abandoned room. He runs his hands over the damage she did to the walls and the evidence of the damage she did to herself as though trying to understand what she was thinking. Empathy is Hero's strong suit, as I've said, and a key component of empathy is trying to understand the thought processes of others. He wonders what she was trying to tell him back then, uh, which I guess means during the hospital room encounter. He had something he wanted to talk about, of course, the question he needed to answer, but uh, what was it she wanted to say? While in thought, the reflected sunlight draws his attention to our symbolic mirror. He saw its broken state before when he was last in this room, and we saw her linger over it last episode before it cut away. One of the things this mirror represents so far is the state of their relationship. Zero Two was surprised but excited by receiving it initially, but then cracked it when her increasing monstrosity made her start to poison things between them. It was in its most shattered state last time, after she injures the others and he called her a monster. Now, in this moment, it is still shattered, of course, but Zero Two has tried to fit it back together again. 
It's not whole, it's not suddenly unbroken, and it's only held together with tape. That is, she doesn't really know how to fix it, or their relationship, but what is plain from her attempt is that she wants it to be repaired. She wants it to be whole. And it is seeing this, understand what she was thinking, that finally snaps Hero out of his inaction, snaps him out of his paralyzing lack of self-confidence. Zero Two wants them to be together. Time to storm the castle. Back inside the battle, the Thirteeners continue their fight, but they are being pushed back. Chlorophytum runs out of ammo, but not determination, as Fatoshi opts just to break off pieces of the plantation and fight back with them. The look of surprise on the other squad's Franks completes this picture. Who are these crazy 13th squad members? Zotome and Miku's fight takes them right past the apartment where Zotome spent a day, and the woman there watches on. I realize now that one of the things that episode accomplished was giving just a tiny bit of humanization to the adults in this plantation, letting us worry about their fates in addition to those of our squad. Ichigo's worry or preoccupation with Zero Two continues enough for Goto to notice and to try to snap her out of it, but you know what's more distracting than stampeding Sterlesia? This tiny new contender. Inside the training unit, Hiro is basically doing what we said he needed to do to face his flaw, to remember the type of person he was before his encounter with Zero Two began his downward spiral of lost confidence. He realizes that he stopped asking questions, stopped wanting to see the outside world. And then we get a peek into why Hiro was drawn to Zero Two in the first place. He felt like he was fighting the world alone, and no one else would take a stand with him. And indeed, back then, we did see that even Ichigo and Goto blanched at the idea of resisting, of dreaming too big. Seeing Zero Two fighting back, striving against the authorities that ruled their world excited him. It made him happy. It made him less lonesome. It seems that she wasn't just someone he felt he had to save back then. She was the motivation he needed in order to act, to turn his feelings of wrongness about their world into action. When she was taken from him, his ability to act went with her. Since they've been reunited, he's only really shown when it is with her or for her sake. She's the key to his flaw, uh, and I'll talk more about that toward the end. Now, I really like that his attempts to cross the battlefield in a stupid training unit did not just luckily work out. I like that he faced real danger here, and basically failed on his own, taking injury in the process. To get to Zero Two, he has to break out of the path of least resistance. He has to become an active agent of change. What's more, his desire alone isn't enough. He would have died here without Delphinium intervening. Ichigo chastises him, demanding to know why he's out here, and what he thinks he can do in a training unit. Goto understands exactly what's going on, though, and overrides Ichigo to allow for Hiro to swap with him. He hasn't forgotten Zero Two's desperation from last time, I wager, and he knows exactly the links Hiro will go to for her sake. Ichigo's displeasure is a price he's willing to pay to do what he thinks is right. Hiro and Ichigo are going to try to pilot together, it seems. Hiro apologizes for the whole affair, and Ichigo gives a nice summary of the series so far. I think it's odd that they are counting on the connection to just work, especially in the middle of a battlefield like this. Though we still don't know quite why connecting does or does not work, uh, in fact we may never have it fully explained, I would like to think that the reason it does work in this case is because of Hiro's single-minded focus. Before, he just wanted to pilot, to prove that he could. Uh, it was weak motivation. Driven to find Zero Two and make things right between them though? That's a much more powerful driving force, and as images flood into Ichigo's mind, it seems that is the only thing Hiro is thinking about. Ichigo rebels against this. She doesn't want to see it. 
she had just confessed herself to Hiro, was finally going to make him see her the way she sees him, and instead she gets to see firsthand the passion he has for another woman. Like I said last time, Ichigo is a tragic character. But a good one, because she connects anyway, and resolves to get Hiro across the battlefield and to his woman. I'm sure finally getting to see her the way Hiro does helps, all those endearing and personal moments that no one else has gotten to see. Zero Two in the present, though, is in the midst of giving up on her quest to become human, the line between her human and Klaxosaur sides blurring as she thinks back fondly on Hero. This time, it's not the hero of her youth, but the recent one, the one who found her and loved her all over again. And he's found her once more with Ichigo's help. But Ichigo is going to get one more release of her frustration out here. Hero doesn't even understand what's happening, but I kind of feel like Zero Two does. Ichigo confesses how begrudging she is to be handing Hero over, but if she is going to do it, then by golly, Zero Two better snap out of it. Even though Ichigo got the short end of the characterization stick this episode, I approve of her getting some of her frustrations voiced and showing that she can be supportive and confrontational at the same time. And hey, who knows if they would have broken Zero Two out of her rampage otherwise. She does stop, allowing Hero to transfer between the two Franks. He steps inside the cockpit, getting past one barrier between them, but a much larger one still remains. Of course, Hero and Zero Two's conflict is just a part of the whole, and the never-ending tide of Klaxosaurus continues around them. Ichigo states that only Strelizia can kill the big guy, and she seems to have found the time to recollect Godro and also to fix her, uh, her hat. We get a comment from Kokoro that suggests the tide may be turning for them, but in the midst of this fighting, a curiosity drops. One of the cores from a dead Klaxosaurus splits neatly open, and out falls something that looks very much like a seated human dipped in gold or amber. They don't get a chance to speculate much on what they are seeing, uh, but we will get to do a little bit of that ourselves later on. What interrupts them are explosions coming from the area of the Grand Crevasse. Apparently, Ape is ordering the plantations to explode themselves against the protective dome. Curiously, we have this bit of dialogue about a plantation's backup process nearly incomplete, and then them being allowed to go, releasing them from the cages of their bodies. Having these two statements together really makes me think about mind uploading, uh, but let's not slow down to speculate on this right now, uh, we'll come back. This blowing up of plantations, though, seems like a pretty big departure. Yes, we saw the 26er squad voluntarily self-destruct earlier in this episode, but we also knew that the children were largely treated as disposable, uh, or at least doomed. This is sacrificing adult lives as well as plantation infrastructure. How badly does Ape need to get into the Grand Crevasse if it's worth losing sizable chunks of their population? Would they just have kept going? Even Hachi is shocked, possibly the first time we've seen him show a glimmer of emotion about the fate of others. Dr. Franks also does not seem to approve. It seems he really does have some qualms about how goals are pursued by the Council. Back inside Strelizia, the actual deciding battle is underway. Nothing so simple as just connecting is going to work, and so Hero tries to find another way to reach Zero Two where she is. His best idea is to connect to her in a more direct way, putting his hands on her enormous, distorted horns without any of the hesitation he had showed about her before. This is what I was hoping for, you know? Um, I said back in episode 11, ideally, I'd like to see her become especially monstrous and have Hero accept her anyway, because then I think a lot of her barriers will come down. It seems this was true on more than one level. 
as he is now able to see into her memories once more. These memories begin with the memory-wiping tables that we saw briefly before. While they had no trouble blanking Hero's memory, it appears Zero Two had memories they couldn't quite get to, that there was something strong protecting them. Even though there is a risk of strain from reusing the machine, Dr. Franks urges them to erase them anyway. Additionally, he seems to know that Hero has ingested her blood and that it will probably make him useless. But he insists that they return him to Garden anyway because he's an interesting specimen. Isn't that curious? They prize the parasites with high aptitude and have no qualms about disappearing the ones that don't make the cut, yet he returns Hero to Garden while knowing that he probably can't pilot anymore. I'm telling you, there's something going on with Dr. Franks when it comes to Hero. He says things around others that give one impression, but trying to discern his motives behind his actions kind of leave you wondering. I can't shake the feeling that he's pulling the long con here. Now, we don't know what kind of damage the repeated use of the mind wipe has on Zero Two. Um, it may be that any one of her ongoing issues originate from this encounter, but at least some of our mystery about what she does or doesn't remember gets filled in during this next bit, where she is once again in the room where Hero sprung her. It seems she is held onto the picture book somehow, so that's cool. She can tell something is wrong with her mind, and she injures herself in her frustration. Tasting her own blood has the strange effect of letting her access those scrambled memories, even just in pieces, and realizing this prompts her to drink and try to remember more. It doesn't specify, but I feel like the memories must have faded, and she would have to keep retasting her blood, surprised each time by what sprung back into her mind. Do you think she kept injuring herself for days or years afterwards just to refresh her memory? Uh, did she slowly lose this ability as her blood changed to red? She tells us that she didn't want to forget, uh, that she thought if she'd never become human if she forgot, um, she was incredibly determined. So I don't doubt she would keep making herself bleed if it meant remembering. And then she also decides to eat the picture book. Why does she eat the picture book? I'm sure part of it is kid logic, but I would like to venture that she somehow understood that the book could be taken away from her, just as they apparently could take away some of her memories. But her physical self, her blood and body, that somehow held on to memories. Tasting her blood, tasting part of herself, brought the images back. Maybe if the picture book pages become part of her too, they would never be able to take it away from her. And so she destroys the one pretty thing she has in the whole world out of some abstract hope that'll help her remember the boy who tried to set her free. That is... I need a minute. While consuming the book, she tells us about her first words. The first word she learned was how Hira referred to himself, Boku. You know, I don't understand Japanese well enough to understand all the subtlety and interplay, um, but I have noticed that Zero Two often uses Boku as her first person pronoun, something that is not common for women. Shall we assume that the reason she does this stems from the encounter with Hero and it being her first word? The second thing she learned was her name, Zero Two, and thirdly, Darling. If she is Zero Two and he is Darling, is it possible that she has been using Boku all this time because that way they're using the same term? Her first words then being the two of them apart and the two of them together? Regardless, Hero shows up in the memory now, finding the downtrodden young Zero Two fighting to remember him, fighting against the disappearance of their memories together. How must Hero feel to know that while he stopped asking questions, stopped fighting the world, 
This little girl who hardly understood anything at all had kept fighting in her own way. How could he do anything else but swear to be there for her? And just like that, the line is no longer blurred. While Hero is ecstatic that they can finally face each other, Zero Two is still afraid. Afraid of how she looks, afraid of how he would react to her, afraid of how he feels about her treatment of him. Strangely enough, the fact that he called her monster turns out to help things a little. She's embroiled in guilt and self-loathing from all she's done or said, but he has guilt of his own, missteps of his own, and declares them even. She is still fixated on that, that she's a monster. Um, it's like she's convinced that he doesn't understand, that he couldn't possibly be here and embracing her if he realized she was a monster. This is why I thought she would need to become more monstrous before she would be able to understand that he was accepting her anyway, that he wasn't budging on how he felt. Once it's clear that he fully grasps that she is part monster, but still chooses her, she can start to believe that he really means it. And Hero doesn't try to skip right past the monstrous nature either, or downplay it. He says they have to think it out and talk it out. Neither of them should rush to judgment about her monstrous side and what it will mean for them, but they will figure it out. Hero talks about the outside world and how much larger it must be than they can imagine. There must be places they have to go. He's not just talking about accepting her as she is, or accepting the past her that he once tried to run away with. He's actively planning for a future together, a future of shared action and discovery. He doesn't want her for now, for this moment, but all the moments that proceed out of this, no matter where such a wish will take them. They are not two destinies co-mingling for a time, they are one. And so it seems we get an answer to the opening song's question. Will your lips taste the kiss of death? The song itself starts up as Strelizia changes once again from something bestial into something human. She even changes color, perhaps this time to the right shade of red. Interestingly, she retains the pattern of the stampede version's eyes across her face, as though holding on to some measure of that monstrous side. I confess I don't fully know what this means. Um, I think we'll have to wait on some other information to guess. Now, Strelizia was pretty strong before, but Stredlesia is something else entirely. They end the threat to Plantation 13 in a matter of seconds, bursting out the other end and flying high. Zero Two then makes up for her rebuffing of Hero's confession from episode 12, being the first one to speak of her love. Hero honestly seems surprised, though delighted, then gets to restate his feelings once more. Apparently, everyone got to hear their moment together, and it kind of looks like the squad is legitimately touched. I know there are probably some complicated feelings among our crew, and Zero Two has some apologizing to do. Heck, Hero has some apologizing to do. But everyone in the 13th Squad has come a long way in their understanding of what a feeling like love even is. This moment would not have had the same meaning for them back at the beginning of our series. I'd say the chances of Zero Two becoming a real member of their squad have gone up astronomically. I'd venture, too, that other relationships within their group may even get a boost from this. More than one of them could really benefit from the redeeming power of being loved. Anyway, feels aside, there is still a job to be done, and Ape's long goal of getting Zero Two to open the Grand Crevasse for them seems to be at hand. Strelizio rushes toward their goal, fighting as they go, and we get to see that Strelizio's face, and therefore Zero Two's, is unabashedly happy. She's grinning like an idiot. They break through to the inside, and with what was obviously planned coordination, the Nines help them shatter the dome. 
Strelizia bursts through the top in dramatic fashion, and the force of it blows the brown storm clouds away, leaving our pair together in clear blue skies. Then our missing narration makes its return. Just as in episode 13, we get a shared narration that is more like a conversation, even featuring moments where they speak in tandem. That is the closest their narration has been, again reflecting that this is the closest the two of them have been. Their narration is a restatement of the opening words of the series, slightly modified, about the Jin bird mythology. I know we've talked about this symbol a lot, but after all my emphasis on character flaws and their journey last episode, I think the full meaning of this symbol has finally clicked. You see, as they say, the Jin bird is imperfect and incomplete. They're flawed. And yet, if they lean on each other, they're capable of flight. They find the situation to be not just acceptable, but profoundly beautiful. And that is how their pairing as Jin birds relates to the character journey each of them has with their own flaws. Zero Two lacks empathy, Hero lacks confidence in action. Neither can fly on their own, yet the other person is exactly what they need to shore up their flaws. Hero is empathy incarnate. No one we've seen in this universe is better suited to shore up and help her learn empathy than he is. Likewise, Hero is at his most confident and proactive when he is acting with or for Zero Two. She's the only person he's seen in the world who is as willing to fight back as he is. He was lost for years without her, and he still has a lot he needs to do to repair his self-confidence, but with her by his side, he can fly again. See, I had thought they would need to confront their flaws and make progress on them if they wanted to be happy together, to stay the type of disaster that found them last time. But maybe the very thing they need to face those flaws is each other. The Jin bird doesn't magically grow wings and become capable of flight just by finding a partner. Rather, they must stay together, because when they are apart, their flaw keeps them from ever reaching the sky. Finally, there is a bit of a stinger to the end of this episode, a uh, post credit sequence, basically. The Super Layman Klaxosaur was hiding a giant mass of cores. Night Alpha seems to think that it means the whole area will blow and they need to flee. Hero and Zero Two ready themselves for action. Uh, I guess they intended to go attack the cores. And then Zero Two gets, I don't know, maybe the Klaxosaur version of Spidey Sense? whatever it is, indicates to us that she is still connected to whatever is in the Grand Crevasse, at least, and what it warns of is Giant Baby Hand. I don't know what the hand is, uh, it most resembles the amalgamation Klaxosaurs that we've seen so far, but I can guess at what it wants. It doesn't want those cores captured, preferring to destroy them all instead. Of course, that takes Plantation 13 with it, save for Mistletine and our squad themselves, I guess we'll find out next time if Hachi and Nana and Dr. Franks made it. Or the Nines and Strelizia for that matter, as we don't actually get any confirmation that they got out of the way. I can't imagine the series would kill someone off this way, uh, but there may be some kind of damage or complications that we learn about next time. Now this time I'm for certain that we've reached our halfway point. So with our walkthrough finished, let's look at goals and conflicts, which saw the most movement out of any episode so far. So in goals. Hero's goal of becoming Zero Two's wings, that seemed so far away last time, is now basically the default state of things. There is no way that they will be willingly separated after this, so I think in a way this goal is complete. Each of them is the other's wing now, uh, which I'll talk about a little more in theme. Zero Two's goal to meet her darling from back then, uh, we'll call this Met. 
she's still not human, but now we are left wondering how much that will even matter. However, only external things will prevent this now, so for our own goal purposes, this comes off the board. For Ape's unknown goal, well, all we knew was that the next step was succeeding at the Grand Crevasse. That is over, but we still don't know what this goal is. So we'll keep calling this unknown, but I think it's definitely in the driver's seat of the series right now. Ichigo's goal of wanting to be with Hiro forever. Um, Ichigo might be conceding this goal. At least, I don't think she can hope much for anything romantic with Hiro, and I think she knows it. Uh, maybe they will make up for shortchanging her characterization this time by giving this a new wrinkle, but it might be that this one should come off as well. Finally, Hero's old goal of fly free gets restated this time. We now can see more plainly that this is about more than just flying in the sky or successfully piloting, but actually is about seeing the world outside of the one they've known. All of his reading and questioning led him to that desire, but he didn't act on it until young him met Zero Two. After losing each other, he seems to have forgotten that he wanted this, but now that they're together, this goal becomes a shared one. So we will instead change this into a new goal for the both of them, see the outside world. How exactly this manifests will probably depend on what they end up needing to do about Zero Two's continuing monstrosity, um, and whatever is going on with Hero as well, but breaking away from society in some way will be part of this goal for them, and it might be what brings them into conflict with Ape in the future. Speaking of conflicts, uh, we have more to strike off here as well. We've got the Zero Two Devour's partners. Um, I think we can call this over. She won't devour Hero on purpose, I don't think. And if she's with someone else, then it means some new conflict has arisen anyway. So this one's toast. Uh, the same goes for Hero losing the ability to pilot. Not only does he get his one true partner back, he also successfully pilots with Ichigo, even if briefly. Uh, we may or may not get more details on why this went the way it did, but I think it's over regardless. Now that doesn't mean everything is perfectly fine for Team Stradlesia though, um, as we got no information at all on these two conflicts, the Blue Heart Yellow Blood and the Zero Two is changing conflict. If we believe last time, piling at all should put Hero into the danger zone for sorification. What's more, Zero Two became more monstrous even without piloting with Hero. I'm not sure what causes this for her, but if she gets this way with him and without him, then there is something they don't understand to this phenomenon, and thus it is a looming threat. Speaking of looming threats, the Klaxosaur threat has turned into a giant baby hand. Now, they escalated this conflict plenty with the Grand Crevasse Showdown, then busted out to the Super Layman class that wrecked plantations, but that wasn't enough to show how serious this has become. After all, Team Strelizia is way overpowered now. No, we need the Grand Crevasse to have an almost absurd threat level, as this giant hand smashes the 13th's home with little effort. This isn't going to be the kind of battle they just walk away from, and we can tell from Ape's determination that this conflict is about way more than just fighting odd Klaxosaurs. Finally, the team is not a team. Seeing them excel in such a situation strongly indicates that this conflict has mostly receded. Being witness to Hero and Zero Two's moment is probably a very unifying experience for the team as well. There still will be issues down the line uh, when Hero and Zero Two likely come into conflict with Plantation Society, but even that seems like it'll go more smoothly now thanks to this episode. 
I won't call this over because we're about to have a lot of new stresses on the squad, like being homeless. So we'll see how far they've come on this the next time around. So moving to theme, uh, we have individualism versus collectivism. Uh, so we had some obvious moments for this one with the 26er suicide bombing and then the plantation self-destruction. This was not just choosing the collective good over individual wills, but actually lives, all for the purpose of the liberation of humanity, as A puts it. That is the extreme example for this theme. Um, the differences in squad behavior are a less drastic one. The individual members of 13 each act far more individualistically than the other squads, yet because they function toward a common goal most of the time, they are still a collective of sort themselves. This collective, though, is more individualistic compared to the otherwise interchangeable squads of the other plantations. In the particular circumstance we have right now, this bent toward individualism continues to aid them. However, partnerships themselves are another stage for this tension. Two partners with shared goals and trust and temperaments appear to be more successful than partners who share no purpose or work at cross-purposes. Hero and Zero Two get to illustrate this dramatically, as she had a different goal than him for a time, and that led nearly to his demise. Once they reach an accord this time, their individual shortcomings are shored up by the other, and their shared goal makes them stronger together than they can hope to be while apart. If they do indeed fight against the world in the future, then their collective will on this will be stronger than each of their individual wills. However, their willingness to put this shared goal above the wishes of the society is itself a bent towards valuing individualism more highly. It's a good demonstration of how this theme is about points along a continuum, not choosing sides. However, this choice leads directly to individual versus society. In this case, it's two individuals, but Hero and Zero Two both have a history and a current goal that brings them into conflict with their society. And not just the authority figures at the top of the society either, but even against the members of their own squad, who are the closest thing they have to peers. While it's likely that the squad will be influenced toward coming into the conflict with the greater society themselves, this is still going to be a source of tension between them if it happens, followed by the tension of the squad itself coming into conflict with the rest of society, assuming it goes that way. Thus, it's possible for one group to represent society in this struggle during part of a story, and then later find themselves on the other side of the tension. In each case, you become the individual in this tension when you decide that your goals, needs, or values supersede any conflict that these aspects may have with the society's goals or needs or values. I expect this to become a dominant tension going into the series' third act. Now in bird and flight metaphors, uh, the main thing here is the realization of the gin-bird metaphor, giving it the final relevance to our characters by linking their flaws as people into their need for each other. The episode itself was called Gin, and other than the stinger at the end, we basically have opened and closed the entire story so far with the same description of the gin board metaphor and what it means to our two main characters. It is the most obvious symbol in the series, but I want to reiterate that it has gained shades of meaning as we have gone along. The basic part of it is pretty straightforward. Gin birds are imperfect and incomplete and can't do anything you normally associate with a bird until they join another incomplete bird like themselves. Hero and Zero Two are meant to be a male and female pair of these gin birds, 
and they cannot fly when they are apart, only when they are together. This is literally true in the case of piloting, which requires the male-female pairing as well, leaving the side the aberrant stampede mode. However, the metaphor actually seems more relevant to their personal lives than their professional lives. In their youth, Zero-Two's willingness to fight is what gave Hero the motivation he needed to act on his own feelings and desires. In turn, Hero's affection and empathy gave Zero-Two the motivation she needed to begin the long journey towards trying to join humanity. Each of them had something they lacked that they gained from the other. Once they were separated, the thing that they lacked became pronounced enough within them that it actually turned into a character flaw. This culminated in episode 14, where the flaws manifest in such a way that it nearly separates them forever. And uh, as we could see this episode, continuing apart would not have ended happily for either one of them. It turns out though, that rather than fixing their flaws independently of one another, they really needed to be able to lean on the other, one-winged birds requiring the other to fly. What's more, they don't see this arrangement as a bad thing. Rather, they find that interdependence to be profoundly beautiful. Each will be stronger down the stretch by virtue of having the other. And each will be able to pursue this restated idea of flying free. It's not enough that each of them wanted to see the outside world, to fight against the world, to get out of here. Neither one of them has even attempted to do that in the entire time they've been apart. In other words, it's not a goal they want for themselves separately, but a thing they want to chase together. Like I said, there's almost no chance these two will part willingly. Good luck to anyone who tries to separate them by force. Lastly, with death and rebirth, we had a type of rebirth this episode, visually represented by the new coloration on Strelizia. The Hero Zero Two team is probably inseparable now, owing to reasons far beyond their piloting aptitude or compatibility. This is the counter death and rebirth to the one that each of them experienced in their youth when they were separated. The Zero Two who loves and trusts no one and will do anything in pursuit of her darling is dead and gone. Likewise for the hero who lost his confidence and his ability to act. These intermediary versions of themselves that we have known for most of the series have been replaced. These new versions of them are more like their younger selves but still carry the flaws and scars and experience of the years in between. They aren't a return to what they were before, but are a new thing itself. Now, Ape Council's exact goal is still unknown, but they have their eyes set on some kind of death and rebirth of the world as well. Due to all the symbolism we have talked about regarding fertility rituals and sacrifice and priest kings and all that, I have been operating under the assumption that Ape Council will eventually come into conflict with some or all of our squad in the pursuit of this new world. Now that Hero and Zero Two are reborn themselves, with Stradlesia as their obvious symbol, they are in position to subvert and perhaps prevent the type of rebirth that Ape has in mind. This may mean preventing some essential stage of their plan, it may mean substituting some sacrifice for another, it will really depend on how closely they follow this extended metaphor. But I would say that there is a certain thematic consistency in having the Franks team that went through their own death and rebirth being the ones in the best position to counter or alter the type of rebirth that the Ape Council is striving toward. In What to Watch For, um, we have like three episodes worth of things to account for now. Um, I've already reorganized this a bit to consolidate some categories and take off things that aren't relevant anymore. Uh, we will take the code numbers off, 
We still don't know exactly how they're assigned, but I don't think it will be spelled out. They represent piloting potential, and I feel at this point, this metric is so poorly defined for us, uh, it's gotta be on purpose, so we'll start up worrying about it. We can guess now that Zero Two's partner was seemingly older because of the strain of it, similar to what we saw with Code 090 this time. We can guess that Zero Two somehow knew that Hero had blue blood, and so would fail with Ichigo. We still don't quite have an answer about why she knew that, or if she knew it was her own blood, because that would call a lot of other things into question. But now that we have a cause for the failure that she could understand, uh, we're going to remove this. We also know that her connection process is different in the sense that she causes other pilots to start to become more like her, which kills almost all of them. For Hiro, we now know why his blood is doing something different than the others, because he has been carrying some of Zero Two in him all along. As far as these Ape and Papa subcategories, um, I think we should go ahead and cross some of this off, um, as I think we will only get a limited picture on this. The Ape Council rules Plantation Society, and Papa turns out to be a religious, military, and political leader in this system. I don't think anyone cares or would be surprised about the hologram aspect of the council from the first episode, uh, now that we've seen that they basically live in orbit. However, the question of what the Grand Crevasse is and why it matters still remains, even though the whole episode revolved around discovering it and opening it. That one at least stays, as well as why it matters to them so much. Uh, we will restate Dr. Franks' section a bit. One thing we still want to know is, what is his aim in making the 13th Squad different? Um, I don't think there's any doubt that he's changed a lot about their situation with some goal in mind, but he is pretty inscrutable so far. Another thing to watch for is how much has he influenced Hero and Zero Two's path? Other than the memory wiping that we know of, that is. Several other things we watched for are now part of this one, uh, hence the rework. So what should we add? Well, this episode dumped a ton of mystery on us. Uh, let's see what all I think we might get answers for. The Nines demonstrate a different boy-girl connection scenario than we were led to believe was possible, so we need to watch for why they are different or why their Franks are different. Zero Two and Strelizia work in the normal way, including having the lower pilot face connected to the Franks, so why she is more like the other squad than her original squad is just another part of this mystery. We should watch to see what the uploading of the plantations that was referenced means. It may be related to why they were so cavalier about blowing up entire plantations, uh, but we'll also watch to see why that was the case. Hopefully we will get to see the repercussions for the Klaxosaurs invading inside of Plantation 13. I know it basically got smushed there at the end, but some of it survived and probably a chunk of its population as well. What happens to those people now? Is there some extra consequence to having the Klaxosaurs come into contact with the interior population like that? What does that mean for our squad? Mistletine wasn't flattened, so I guess they'll be able to get all their belongings out of it, but I'm not sure how they would go back to living there. They no longer have a plantation to defend, either, unless we're going to sit here and repair it back to functionality while they keep watch. Do they join another plantation and its command structure? Do they take over for a lost squad? Or does their performance on the battlefield and link to Strelizia mean that they become an independent body like the Nines? maybe even getting directly involved in whatever is happening in the Grand Crevasse. That seems like the most logical segue, actually. Uh, there are some other big and obvious things we need answers for here. Uh, what is up with the cores and the human-like centers? Uh, there's no way that's a coincidence. 
What is actually the purpose of the Grand Crevasse and why does Ape want inside? What is Hringhorn and how does it relate to everything else? I'm guessing it's a vessel of some variety based on its origin, but for who and to what end will help tell us how it relates to the Balder myth and therefore to the mistletoe metaphor. And of course, the giant hand. That seems like the kind of thing you want to keep sealed, not break loose, so there is obviously a lot of the story we are currently missing. Now on our speculation list, there are some things I find to be increasingly unlikely, but I'm going to leave them up because they aren't for sure wrong yet. Uh, we do have a couple things to take down and to alter. The first is my long-standing speculation that Hero would bestow a name on Zero Two. We already saw that he was inadvertently the one who gave her that name, but I had suggested that there may come a time when he gives her something new. Now that the two of them have joined in the way they have, I feel like this is actually less likely, but I'm going to change it to that and keep it on here because I can still see some ways in which it might make sense. Um, there's one down here about Hero having some past trauma and forgetting related events. We can safely mark that off now. Um, and everything else up here, we'll just leave for now. That leaves us with what to add. Honestly, they dumped so much mystery on us, it's hard to even know where the focus of this anime is going to be next time, let alone which direction to run with what we learned. I already said that I would not speculate on why the Nine's piloting is different, because we've always been starved of hard information when it comes to the connection process. Upending the few things we thought we did know means I don't have any good basis to believe anything I speculate will be accurate. I will say, though, that our thoughts about the Franks and Klaxosaurs having a link seems to make uh, increasing sense when we consider the little light horns that the lower pilots have. There are some obvious unknowns that we'll take some guesses toward. Two of them seem to go together. There's Godo's comment about the doorway of the Grand Crevasse Dome seeming like it was man-made, and then later the humanoid thing that falls out of the Klaxosaur core. Combine that with the way the giant baby hand would rather destroy the cores than leave them there, it seems there is a pretty big mystery or secret with regards to how the cores and Klaxosaurs relate to one another and to humanity. I'm not going to go wild with this one, even though a lot of possibilities occur to me. Um, I will guess something I've suggested before, that Klaxosaurs are not some alien species protecting the lower levels of magma from a human incursion, but are something resulting from man's activity in the past. Whether this is runaway mining equipment, uh, some type of self-assembling AI that turned on its creators, or some separate human faction that opposes plantation society are all things that I can see, but I don't have a good reason to choose between them. Even being some monster that we stirred up in truth is not out by any means, and it would be the strongest option for emphasizing the nature versus artifice theme. But there is so much obvious secrecy around the whole Grand Crevasse and piloting process and the origin of plantation society that something as direct as coming into conflict with a hostile species starts to seem unlikely. Why have such a controlled society if there wasn't some part of the narrative you needed to direct? And what about a hostile species would need obscuring if that's really all it was? Now, to me, it seems they have something they'd rather not be well known, and something about it will upset the order if it comes out. Only some kind of human activity in the past or present fits that bill, so that is what I am guessing is going on. After all, if Godot is right, and the dome was built over Cran Crevasse by human hands, 
then doesn't that mean some past faction of humans wanted to seal in or else protect this area? I will go ahead and elaborate on the uploading bit that I've talked about already. The adults, as we know, act like they are immortal, and there is apparently no more need for children in this society, or maybe any kind of real social structure. Is it possible this is not just from biotech that lets them slow down the body's clock, but a type of mental immortality as well? Like, we already see the direct accessing of the mind for activating their reward centers, and we see the mind alteration process for Hero and Zero too. When Ape Council gets the news that Plantation 37's backup progress is nearly complete, they comment about releasing them from the cages of their bodies. Is that backup process possibly the minds of all the adults being uploaded to some data storage elsewhere? Maybe to stay living in some kind of virtual interconnected world, but maybe to be re-downloaded into another body later? Could this possibly be what happens to the children that go missing from Garden? Could this be why we see some relatively young adults mixed in, like Nana and Hachi? It would certainly answer why none of the children become adults. They either get used up by piloting, or they get to play host to some quasi-reincarnated adult. Of course, I also wouldn't be surprised if some kind of body-swapping, mind-swapping shenanigans is what's behind the humans and cores mystery as well, but I am not sure how to explain that at this point. Something terrible is afoot in both situations, though, I would definitely guess. Now, as to speculating about the immediate future of our squad... Well, I mentioned all the stuff about Plantation 13 being destroyed. Unless they can miraculously fix it, I think they intend to have our squad jump out of the routine we've seen so far and join in on this new Grand Crevasse affair. The loss of their home just cements it. Perhaps they will be linked up with the Nines. That would certainly make for some interesting character interaction. I do suspect that whatever changes for them, it will finally start the ball rolling on the squad discovering all kinds of things that are not out in the open yet. Their fates, the deal with Claxosaurs, with reproduction, uh, with child fever, uh, with what happened to their peers and Naomi, and what exactly the old men are after. We might get more world building than characterization for a while soon enough. So we will stop there and wait to see where they take us. Hopefully we don't lose focus on what has made this series good to this point. Next time. Title music by Russell J. Crowe. Other music licensed from the artists at Audio Jungle. Script, performance, and editing by Theta. Theta is played by Redacted. Original video can be found at youtube.com slash C slash nearly on red. And a full list of credits is available at nearlyonred.com. Until next time, thanks for everything.